0: Hello once again everybody. As always, I'm your host Jonathan Robson, and welcome to another episode of the CBUS Paranormal Paracast. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the infamous West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville, West Virginia, and there's a lot of information to unpack on this month's episode. As I previously mentioned on the last episode, this trip would consist of three days of chaos, and I'll be picking up from where I left off on our Hempfield Tunnel episode. This would actually be the first time our team had been to the prison in over a decade. Damn time flies, (laughs) but it was well worth the wait to experience the location again. On this episode, I'll be discussing our experiences from our 2011 investigation, and also the public investigation we were a part of last year. To start off, I would like to thank the West Virginia State Penitentiary and Paranormal Quest for having us out as a vendor at last year's Paracon. We had the chance to visit with some familiar faces, sell some books, investigate, and hang out with a few of our odd friends from Australia. (laughs) Of course I mean that in the best kind of way. You guys are awesome. It was truly a fun and busy weekend. Before I begin, I would like to thank our monthly Patreon subscribers for their continued support, and for the reception of our new Patreon series, Legends and Lore. For those of you that are missing out, the Legends and Lore series consists of shorter episodes of smaller locations, legends, and monster stories that our team has come across during our travels. So far, the series has covered Mansfield, Ohio's Fairhaven Monster and Squire's Castle in Willoughby Hills, Ohio. Our next episode debuts in April. I'll be discussing the swampy home habitat of the Steeter Bog Monster, based out of Urbana, Ohio. I've also been sharing photos and rare research documentation for each episode. Are you interested in joining us on Patreon? Well, come visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash cbusparanormalparacast or just click the Patreon link for our website at cbusparanormal.com. From there, you'll have the choice of two tiers for your monthly subscription. Your support helps to maintain our shows, and it also helps to keep new content coming in. As always, I truly appreciate your support, and you can always cancel at any time if needed. So that being said, it's time to throw the book at you and throw away the keys. It's time to discuss one of America's most well-known haunted and violent prisons, the West Virginia State Penitentiary. In 1863, the state of West Virginia seceded from Virginia and was suffering from a shortage of public institutions, including prisons. At the time, Governor Arthur Borman lobbied the legislature for the penitentiary, but was denied. Instead, it directed him to send prisoners out of state into county jails, which was obviously not an ideal situation. After nine inmates escaped in 1865, the press took up the cause and the legislature finally approved the purchase of ten acres just outside of Moundsville to build their new penitentiary. The buildings designed to be taken from Gothic revival architecture, and the look of the structure would convey great strength and misery for those who entered its walls. The first building, the North Wagon Gate, was completed in 1876, and was built with sandstone quarried nearby. It was constructed with prison labor. This would also be the case for the North and South cell blocks. The prison would have its own kitchen, hospital, chapel, and dining area. The cell blocks would be connected together through a four-story tower that would hold the building's administration offices, female inmates, and the living quarters for the warden and his family. Unfortunately, the prison's original design plan has been lost to history, but it's been said that the design of the building is extremely similar to the Juliet State Prison in Illinois, only about half of the size. For the most part, the prison remained sufficient through the early 20th century, and the inmates would later have access to educational materials, and a library in 1900. The prison also had several shops and areas of manufacturing. The shops included carpentry, paint, a blacksmith, shoe shop, and even a bakery. In addition to the 200-plus acre prison farm, prisoners would also work in the kitchen, stables, and wash house. There was also a local mine that opened in the area in 1921, and some inmates were granted access to work there. Conditions, like with most prisons, deteriorated with time. While we've covered the Ohio State Reformatory in the past, I want to be clear that the West Virginia Penitentiary is a completely different animal. It would be ranked as one of America's most violent prisons by the U.S. Department of Justice. In comparison, I would say the West Virginia Pen would be more comparable to the Ohio State Penitentiary that formerly resided in Columbus, Ohio. There were 36 homicides confirmed at the prison. In a recreation area in particular known as the Sugar Shack, was known for its violent activity. It was often the site of gambling, fights, and rapes. At one point, infamous murderer Charles Manson requested a transfer to the prison to be closer to family, but his request was also denied. Overall, there were 94 men executed at the prison from 1899 to 1959. 85 of these individuals would be executed by hanging as West Virginia was late to the party in bringing in the electric chair to the facility. Until 1931, the public could still attend executions. This would stop, however, when inmate Frank Heyer was executed for murdering his wife. When a trap door opened, his full body weight pulled on the noose and decapitated him in front of a horrified crowd. <laughs> After this incident, attendance at hangings were by invitation only. Finally, Old Sparky was introduced in 1951. The chair was built by inmate Paul Glenn. Nine men would meet their end on a chair before the state prohibited capital punishment entirely in 1965. The chair is now on display in the prison's gift shop and can regularly be seen during tours. It's pretty crazy to think about the prison's ratio of hangings compared to the chair. It was nearly the exact opposite of what was being done at the Ohio State Penitentiary over the years. Prisoners who did die from execution or other causes, whose bodies weren't claimed by their families, be buried in a prison cemetery, Whitegate Cemetery. Their graves would be marked with a license plate type marker, and the cemetery is located about three and a half miles east of the prison. As with most prisons around this time period, it became severely overcrowded. This would often result in the cells containing three prisoners at a time. Again, using prison labor, the prison would continue to expand throughout various expansion projects throughout its history. However, the prison's conditions, and inmate morale, would continue to deteriorate. In March of 1973, a large group of inmates held five guards hostage demanding better conditions. During the standoff, two inmates were stabbed and another was killed. The riot itself lasted 24 hours before negotiations between the inmates and Governor Archmore ended. Following the negotiations, which cost thousands of dollars in damage, the guards were returned. Deceased inmate Willie Hale's body was removed from the facility as well, and it's believed he was targeted due to his perceived favorable relationship with the warden. In November of 1979, 15 prisoners also escaped the facility, which led to the death of an off-duty state trooper who was driving by the prison at the time of the escape. Inmate Ronald Williams stole one of the guard's guns and was accused of shooting the trooper, spent over a year on a run before he was recaptured in 1981. And last. But not least, a New Year's Day riot occurred at the prison in 1986. Once again, none of the hostages were harmed. The three inmates died during a three-day standoff, where rioters were once again demanding better conditions and policies. During the prison's later years, the security at the prison had become loose, escapes were frequent, and inmates at times appeared to have a free run of the prison. Most of the cell doors could be picked at this point, and inmates were often found freely roaming the halls. Poor plumbing and insect infestations would also help spread disease, and the prison would once again be faced with overcrowding issues. Ultimately, the overcrowding issues and sanitation problems would be the demise of the prison as it was ordered to be closed in 1995. Most of the remaining inmates would be transferred to the Mount Olive Correctional Facility in Fayette County. Once the prison closed, the Moundsville Economic Development Council secured a 25-year lease on the complex and the building is still being used as a training facility for law enforcement to this day. This lease is something to keep an eye on in the future, as this time is nearly up, and I'm not sure how serious the state is in keeping the facility open in the future. Hopefully someone will see the value in keeping the building open, and start increasing the building's restoration efforts. I'll discuss this a bit more later in the episode. Throughout the prison's lifespan, the West Virginia Penitentiary remained in operation from 1876 to 1995. During that time period, there were approximately 998 deaths within the facility. This prison held some of the most violent killers, rapists, and other criminals, many who didn't leave the institution alive. And if that wasn't enough, another reason the old prison might be haunted is because it's been said to have been built in a Native American burial ground. This obviously isn't that hard to believe as right across the street sits Grave Creek Mound, one of the largest burial mounds in the United States. Before I start discussing the prison's more infamous inmates and hauntings, I want to take a minute to discuss the many claims of inmate torture that occurred at the prison over the years as well. The Cincinnati Enquirer published an article on November 30, 1886. The article provided a few gruesome details of inhumane punishment and torture that was occurring at the prison in its early years. Former West Virginia Penitentiary Assistant Superintendent Wilkerson had seen enough and provided several accounts of violence that he had witnessed during his time there. The principal instrument of torture used in the prison was called the Kicking Jenny, an instrument of torture that was invented and built within the prison itself. When the device was being used, a prisoner would be stripped of his clothes and bent over on the machine. His feet would be fastened to the floors with ropes, and their arms would be stretched over the upper end tied to small blocks. The tension was described as being extremely painful, so much that the prisoner could be torn in two with the slightest pull. After the prisoner was in position, the superintendent, or whoever was in charge of the punishment, would take a heavy whip and beat the prisoner until he was near death or the strength of the man committing the punishment gave out. It wasn't uncommon for the inmate's back to be covered in a pool of blood by the time the guard's strength gave out. There were also numerous names of documented prisoners who tragically died after being tortured on this device. There were also instances of extreme waterboarding, where inmates were tied to the floor and a hose was turned on their face at full blast, choking near death. Only then would the water be stopped, only to be repeated again shortly after. Wilkerson also stated that there are former prisoners buried beneath the walls of the penitentiary. There were a few inmates that died during a building's construction and or were tortured to death during this time period. Back in those days, record keeping wasn't the greatest, and it wasn't uncommon for inmates to supposedly escape or quote-unquote, disappear. Unfortunately, brutality and torture ruled supreme throughout the prison's lifetime, and it's important to note that it wasn't always the prisoners behind these heinous acts. So let's get into some of the penitentiary's more infamous inmates. Before I get started, I do think it's important to mention that I've only selected a few individuals for this portion of the show. For our haunted prison episodes, I typically try to cover well-known events and individuals that have an interesting story. In this case, we're going to discuss three of the penitentiary's, well, more interesting subjects. (laughs) The first individual we're going to discuss is a man of many names and aliases. This man was originally born in the Netherlands under the name of Harmon Drent. However, some of you might know him by the name of Harry Powers, one of West Virginia's most notorious murderers. Harry would eventually move to Iowa and then settled into West Virginia as he got older. Powers would place Lonely Hearts-style advertisements in the newspapers to lure his victims to their death. And by Lonely Hearts advertisements, think of today's dating websites, Craigslist, etc. just in a newspaper form, without photos or any bit of information on who you might actually be talking to through these correspondence letters. I mean, what could possibly go wrong, right? (laughs) Using the alias of Cornelius O'Pearson, Harry would take out several advertisements claiming to be a wealthy widower seeking a new love, and he apparently would receive ten to twenty responses through the mail per day. Oh yeah. And to top it off, he was also married to a lady named Luella Struthers. <laughs> the following is one of the advertisements he placed in a Charleston Gazette. Wealthy widower, worth a hundred and fifty thousand with income from four hundred to three thousand dollars per month, civil engineer, And a fine-looking man of 38 writes, My business enterprises prevent me from making many social friends. I'm therefore unable to make the acquaintance of the right kind of woman. As my properties are located throughout the Middle West, I believe I'll settle there when married. I'm an elk and a mason. Own a beautiful 10-room house, completely furnished. My wife would have her own car and plenty of spending money, but she must be strictly a one-man woman. I would not tolerate infidelity. Am now living in West Virginia. Contact Cornelius O'Pearson, P.O. Box 277, Clarksburg, West Virginia. It's unknown how many people Powers killed during his reign of terror, but there were at least five victims, with likely many more. He would target wealthy widows and convince them to withdraw large amounts of money, and then join him in Quiet Dell, West Virginia. One of his victims was Asta Etcher from Park Ridge, Illinois, a wealthy widow with three children. Powers would convince Asta to leave with him on a romantic trip, and the children were left with a sitter named Elizabeth Abernathy. After a few days, Abernathy received a letter supposedly from Asta that indicated that Cornelius would be back to pick up the children. Shortly after, Powers would be seen with one of Asta's children trying to make a withdrawal from their mom's account. The tellers declined the transaction as a forgery, and Powers and the children fled. A little after this incident, Powers would begin talking to Dorothy Lemke of Northborough, Mass and persuaded her to move with him to Iowa, where he claimed to live at the time. She withdrew $4,000 from her bank account and didn't notice that Powers had asked her to send her trunks to West Virginia. Oh, these poor people. <laughs> Around this time, the police in Parker, Illinois, were growing suspicious of the disappearance of the Etcher family and realized that their suspect, Mr. Cornelius Pearson, didn't exist and that he messed up by leaking his correspondence letters and asked his home. While Cornelius didn't exist, the description provided of the man matched the grocer named Harry Powers in Dell, West Virginia. And, well, they knew they had their suspect. The Harrison County Sheriff obtained a search warrant of Powers' property and unveiled many unspeakable horrors. Powers had recently built a garage, and deputies discovered four secret rooms buried beneath the structure. They discovered a burned bank book, blood-soaked hair and clothing, and a small bloody footprint of a child. Shortly after, a local boy came to the deputies and told them about a ditch he had recently dug for Powers behind his house. As the deputies inspected and dug into the ditch, they found the rotting bodies of five victims. Miss Lemke was found with a belt around her neck, and Asta and her two daughters were strangled. Her son had a different fate as Powers took a hammer to his head. Yeah, this is a truly disturbing case. Especially considering you know he came back for the kids and this is how they met their end. Powers wouldn't initially admit to the murders, but confessed after falling down some stairs during questioning. (laughs) Later photos would reveal Powers had two black eyes and heavy bruising after his interrogation. He would never state how many people he actually had murdered over the years, and some people believe it could have been over 50 victims. Hysteria would ensue shortly after his arrest, and the local residents were extremely angry. Thousands of spectators would surround the Harrison County Jail where Powers was being held, and they demanded that he should be given to their mob. The fire department was then forced to tear gas the crowd to get them to disperse. He was then moved to the West Virginia Penitentiary for concerns of his safety and of city officials. Powers' trial lasted only five days, and he was sentenced to death. He was hung at the penitentiary on March 18, 1932, and he had no last words. His widow never claimed his remains, and he was buried in the prison cemetery. One thing I found odd about this case is that Powers wouldn't sign his confession until the names of his wife and sister were removed from it. It seems like his wife must have known about Harry's criminal activity. After all, the crimes were committed on her deserted farm. Then there's the matter of all the letters he received. Oddly enough, that's also how he supposedly met her. I'll let you think and speculate about how much she truly knew and wonder why she wasn't held to any sort of accountability after this. And on a side note, Powers is also known to have had more than one wife that were seemingly deserted in different states. Thankfully, none of them met their end on Harry's murder farm. The second prisoner I'm going to discuss from the penitentiary is Ronald Wall. Some of you might be more familiar with his nickname, R.D., R.D. was serving time at the prison after a rape conviction in Logan County. Most reports state that R.D. was a model prisoner, and is a favorite amongst the wardens. Because of this, R.D. spent a considerable amount of time under the administration building in the prisoner's boiler room, working for the maintenance department. Unfortunately for him, R.D. makes our infamous prisoners list because of what happened to him. On October 8, 1979, R.D. Walls, brutally attacked and murdered by his fellow inmates. Various stories indicate that his fingertips were cut off, and he might have been even decapitated, or his throat severely sliced in a horrific affair. It's hard to tell if the decapitation actually happened, or if it was simply speculation and legend. It's not uncommon for inmates serving time for crimes against women and children to become targets of violence. It appears the motive for this crime was that his fellow inmates thought he was a snitch for the prison's administration. It's been said that a fellow inmate had heard a discussion R.D. had with one of the wardens about some of the other inmates. In turn, a group of them confronted him in a basement area and attacked him with their custom-made knives and shivs. While R.D. had a reputation for being a snitch, it's also possible that he simply knew too much about some thefts that were happening at the prison near the time of his death. Another fight broke loose in a prison later that afternoon. The Huntington-Herald-Dispatch newspaper discussed this event in its October 9, 1979 edition. One prisoner slain, three others hurt. Moundsville, West Virginia, one inmate was stabbed to death and in a separate fight, three others were injured at the West Virginia Penitentiary yesterday, corrections officials said. Two of the injured inmates, Boyd Tomlin and Dale McCoy, are from Cable County. The three inmates were among four who were fighting in the morning, McCoy said. He described the incident as a major disturbance, a big scuffle. He said it was not a riot. The fight followed a weekend investigation of thefts at the prison. Earlier in the morning, inmate R.D. Walls, 57, was stabbed to death in the maintenance area of the northern section of the prison, according to prison superintendent Richard Moen. He was serving a life sentence on a rape conviction from Logan County. No one has been arrested in the stabbing, officials said. We can find no connection between the incidents. State police were called to investigate. Tomlin, 26, was serving a five to eighteen year sentence on a murder conviction, prison officials said. McCoy, 24, was serving a life sentence on a murder conviction. The third injured prisoner, Carl Eckerd, 33, was serving a life sentence on an armed robbery conviction from Wood County. Tomlin was listed at Reynolds Memorial Hospital in fair condition, and the other two were listed in good condition. A fourth inmate involved with the fight, <laughs> apparently the winner, Rudolph Green was put in a segregated discipline area after the fight, prison officials said. Authorities closed off Jefferson Avenue in front of the prison for a time, and the city fire department was put on alert. While R.D.'s death is one of the most well-known tragic events within the prison, many believe that his spirit still roams the basement of the facility to this day, and that he's now one of the prison's most sane and infamous spirits. And the last inmate that I'm going to discuss today is William Snyder, a.k.a. Red. William was an extremely violent individual whose crimes seemed to escalate with his age. In his 20s, he was known as an arsonist, and he served many prison terms. Red was released from the penitentiary in 1967, and shortly upon his return home, it's been said that it was discovered that his 15-year-old sister was in love with the neighbor boy next door from the Grog family. Apparently, this angered Red and he told his father that he wanted to kill the boy. His father told him to leave him alone. The following morning, Red walked into his father's bedroom and shot him to death while he was asleep. Red then walked to the neighbor's home and took all eight of the Grog family kids hostage. Apparently, their mother and father weren't home at the time. Upon their arrival, their father, Frank Grog, attacked Red, and as they fought, the gun discharged, unfortunately fatally wounding Mr. Grog. Snyder ran from the police but was apprehended shortly by the local police after he was stopped by a bullet to the leg. He would then be returned to the West Virginia Penitentiary for sentencing. The entire event was covered by the Weirton Daily Times newspaper on January 6, 1968. I'll read a few lines from that article. Ex-convict arrested in two murders. A shooting spree Friday night in which two men were killed and the family of one of the victims was held hostage ended with a gun battle with the police early this morning. An ex-convict of only 17 days was arrested. William Snyder, 21, of Dry Fork, west of here, was being held in the county jail here pending the filing of a formal charge of murder, later today. Killed in the outburst in which the police have been unable to determine a motive were Snyder's father, Emory Snyder, 67, who was asleep at his home at the time of the shooting, and Frank Grog, 43, also of Dry Fork, who was shot in the chest at his home, about two miles from Snyder's. The younger Snyder had just been discharged from the Moundsville Penitentiary on December 21st, 1967, after serving three years of a reduced sentence for arson from Lewis County. Snyder reportedly told one of the Grog's seven children, Frank A. Grog, 23, that if he would drive him away, he would leave the rest of the family alone. Officers surrounded the house as Snyder tried to make a getaway in the Grog car. Officers challenged him. Snyder fired at the police with a shotgun, narrowly missing State Police Sergeant C.W. Andrick. A brief gun battle followed, coming to a climax when Snyder was shot in the leg. During Red's life, he would go on to lead the Aryan Brotherhood, one of the United States' oldest white supremacist prison gangs. It's been stated that his involvement wasn't for racism or control, but it was to help him survive through prison life. In November of 1992, an inmate that Red believed was his friend and fellow member named Rusty Lazatier walked over to Red's cell, took out a sharp piece of metal, and stabbed Red to death. The weapon was a sharpened piece of metal that Rusty had taken from his bed frame, and he stabbed Red's body 37 times in total. The cell was drenched in blood by the time the prison guards arrived to his cell. Instead of burying Red in a prison cemetery, a fundraiser effort was started by the guards and the inmates as they wanted to bury him with his family. I'm not sure I get the reasoning behind that one, especially considering how we started Red's story. Apparently the locals fought against it, but the guards and prisoners won out in the long run. He was buried in Riverview Cemetery without a headstone. Rusty Lazatier is still alive today and was temporarily released in 2009 before he found himself again behind bars shortly after, where he still remains to this day. As for Red, many state that his spirit still resides in the penitentiary, and that his presence can still be felt in the cell he was murdered in. So now that we've discussed some of the penitentiary's infamous inmates, let's get into the prison's various reports of paranormal activity. It's believed that the ghostly hauntings have been occurring at the prison since the 1930s. Around this time period, it was reported that an inmate was often seen walking along the maintenance area where prisoners weren't allowed to be in. In some instances, the guards would set off alarms as a warning, but there was no one in the area and no inmates were unaccounted for when the guards investigated those incidents. The North Wagon Gate is said to be one of the most active spots in a prison. In its early days of operation, the North Wagon Gate was home to the prison's gallows. Investigators have reported strange feelings in the area, and the feeling that they're being watched. Various forms of EVPs and voices have been recorded in the area, and at times individuals have also seen shadow figures. It's believed that one of the ghosts haunting the North Wagon Gate is of Orville Adkins, who was condemned for kidnapping a minister that was later found dead. Apparently, Orville's execution was botched, and as the noose was being placed around his neck, the trapdoor was pulled too early and his body fell 20 feet to the ground. (laughs) Man, they they really had some problems with this back in the day, didn't they? (laughs) Starting to think some of this might have been intentional. This wouldn't discourage his executioners as they pulled him back up and hung him correctly on their next attempt. Another one of the prison's most notorious hot spots was called the Sugar Shack by the inmates. The area was notorious for drug deals, gambling, rape, fighting, and even at times, murder. Visitors and investigators reported hearing unseen people arguing, disembodied voices, and other various audio phenomenon. There have also been reports of individuals seeing shadow figures in the area. When in use, this area was known for being a recreation room, and several pieces of prisoner artwork can still be seen on its walls to this day. We also previously discussed the brutal murder of R.D. Wall, and he's also believed to haunt the basement of the facility. Visitors have reported shadow figures in the area, and others have reported various equipment malfunctions. Females have also reportedly been touched, and other visitors have also reported possible ghostly footsteps. The North Hall was notorious for holding the prison's worst inmates, not only for their previous crimes, but also for their behavior within the prison itself during their sentences. It's been stated that these individuals were locked in their cells for nearly 23 hours a day. The most infamous paranormal hotspot in this area is the cell of Red Snyder, who, as we previously discussed, was brutally assaulted in his cell and stabbed 37 times. Many visitors are reported feeling uncomfortable in his cell, it's not uncommon to get EVPs to be captured in the area. There have also been reports of strange photos, equipment malfunctions, and the sound of cell doors banging in the area. While these are just some of the hot spots that reported paranormal activity, nearly every spot in a prison has had some sort of odd experience being recorded at some point throughout its existence. While rare, physical altercations have also been reported at the prison, with individuals reportedly feeling like something brushed up against them, being tapped, and at times even being shoved by an invisible force. There are plenty of reasons why the West Virginia Penitentiary is considered to be one of the most haunted locations in the United States, and it's easy to see why it's earned its haunted reputation. With that being said, I'll continue our story on the West Virginia Penitentiary after this short break. Paranormal investigators, it's a new year, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning for your upcoming investigations and to also stock up on new ghost hunting devices. Thankfully, Ghost Stop has you covered. Ghost Stop has everything you need to advance your team's research and theories. They have digital recorders, camcorders, thermal imagers, EMF devices, laser grids, and much, much more. If you need it, they likely have it. Our team has used several Ghost Stop products over the years. Click the GoStop link on this episode's information panel or on our website at cbusparanormal.com and you can browse through their extensive catalog and place your order today. By using the show's affiliate link on our player and website, you'll also be supporting our show, and this lets GoStop know that we sent you. GoStop, paranormal equipment made by investigators for investigators. Are you interested in starting your own podcast but not sure how to get started? Perhaps it's time to look to Buzzsprout for some direction. Buzzsprout has helped over 100,000 podcasters get their projects off the ground, and they can help you get your podcast listed on every major podcasting platform. They also have several guides to help you navigate through the process of recording and finding the right equipment to use. With Buzzsprout, you'll get a podcasting website, audio players, and detailed analytics to see how people are listening to your show. They will also provide you with the necessary tools to promote your episodes. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners and Buzzsprout wants to see you succeed. Click our Buzzsprout affiliate link on this media player's information panel to start your journey into podcasting. It lets Buzzsprout know that we sent you, and you'll receive a $20 credit if you sign up for one of their paid hosting plans after your second paid invoice. Buzzsprout, let's create something great, together. Welcome back. Our team's first investigation of the West Virginia Penitentiary occurred on June 23, 2012. And it was certainly an interesting experience. At that time, I was with one of our former investigators, Andrew, and we were able to take in some of the local sites before our investigation. We stopped into the Grave Creek Mound to see some of the Native American artifacts, and we were also able to climb the mound itself to take photos of the prison. Afterwards, we'd visit the famed Palace of Gold, which is also an amazing sight to see in Moundsville, high on top of one of the nearby mountains. As darkness descended on the town, we gathered our gear and prepared for the night's investigation. During the night, we had some time to investigate the famed sugar shack and immediately noticed the high EMF levels throughout the area. I found the pipe that was emitting EMF and literally followed it all around the room. We have discussed the effects of high EMF previously on the Paracast, and we both believe that this was likely played a factor in the paranormal happenings that have been reported in the area. High EMF can cause paranoia, the feelings of being watched, feelings of being touched, and so forth. And to put it bluntly, the entire area was one big fear cage. So it's hard to tell what paranormal happenings were actually occurring and what was actually being perceived as paranormal occurrences. Other notable happenings for the night would occur in the infirmary, where there were a few moments where it felt like something was following us in the area. It's hard to describe, but after you've been investigating for so long, you start getting these feelings that something might be happening around you, or something's about to happen. We both felt something in the area, but didn't get any audio responses during our time there. We also had an odd occurrence in the basement area, and we seen what we thought was a shadow figure dart across the room. This incident happened so quickly that we were unable to capture it on video, but we both considered the occurrence as being odd. Perhaps her eyes were playing tricks on us, or perhaps not, but it's important to note that this is the location where R.D. Wall met his brutal end, and that shadow figures are commonly reported in the area. So that was interesting. Once we made our way back to the cell block, we were on the second tier, and I felt something grab the back of my shirt at the time. I told Andrew to stop, and I described exactly what I felt at the moment. We were used to getting similar types of occurrences happening at the prison in Mansfield. And at the time, I stated out loud that the entity could follow us, grab us, or would do whatever it needed to do to get our attention. Unknowingly, at that time, we received two audio hits. The first happened after I stated that I felt something grab my shirt. Shortly after stating this, we received an audio response of, I grabbed his shirt. And after I told it that it could do whatever it needed to get our attention, a second response came across and stated, I'll kill him. (laughs) So, take that for what it's worth. It might be the only time in 11 years of doing paranormal investigations that I've actually been threatened through an EVP. <laughs> this night also had one of our team's most bizarre but memorable road story moments after the investigation. We left Moundsville at about 6 a.m. and we were both starting to get delirious after a long night of investigating. As per our normal tradition, we'd find the most annoying radio station that we could find and blast it to make sure that we stayed awake on a long drive home. Shortly after we came back into Ohio, we were passed by what we assumed as a speeding soccer mom, when the biggest groundhog we ever seen tried to cross the highway. <laughs> Long story short, the ill-fated whistle pig went under the lady's car, and there was a brief delay as we both anticipated the worst. After a few seconds, we both asked, did he make it? When suddenly a massive bloody explosion erupted from under the lady's car and toward ours. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. He didn't make it, but we were both wide awake from that point forward. (laughs) I think we were both stunned more than anything, but that story still occasionally gets brought up from time to time when I talk to folks about our travels. That poor thing unfortunately never had a chance of escaping from Karen's speeding death machine. (laughs) Overall, I have many positive memories of my first trip to Moundsville, so it was pretty awesome to get an email from the organizers of the West Virginia Paracon shortly after our team's return in 2021. Fellow investigators Paranormal Quest seen that we had participated in the Hidden Marietta Paranormal Expo and invited us to participate in a West Virginia Paracon. Naturally, we were all in. It seemed like the perfect storm and perfect opportunity to return to the prison after ten long years. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, I would be joined by fellow author and teammate Jeff Cole on this trip, and he'd be coming out from his home in Atlanta. Ironically, this would be the first convention that we were both able to appear at together since 2017. Normally, we're both not fans of public investigations, but we did decide to participate in the prison's public ghost hunt that night as well. The convention itself went off without a hitch, and we had fun hanging out with our Australian friends from Adelaide Haunted Horizons Ghost Tours. The ladies are a blast to hang out with, and this was one of the many investigations they were conducting over a two-week period that literally spanned the United States. I certainly admire and respect their dedication to the field, Even if we all disagree on the use of motion-censored cat toys. (laughs) During the convention itself, I did have the chance to speak with a few of the local residents who recalled how their families felt about the prison while it was in use. It was interesting to hear their takes and stories about the old prison. Some of these folks had to live right across the street from this Goliath and recalled being yelled at by prisoners through the bars of the prison windows, while others remembered their parents locking down their houses after the news of a prison break would spread throughout the community. As a tourist, I think we can somehow get disconnected from the actual horrors that occurred within these walls, but for the local community, they had to live with it every day, and most of them are understandably glad that the prison is no longer an active threat to their small town. After a long day of meeting people and hogging books, Jeff and I would take a short break for food and get the mobile gear kit ready for the public investigation that night. The hunt's organizers split newer investigators into three groups at the start of the evening, so we naturally grabbed our gear and started exploring the prison on our own terms. Jeff and I would be joined by two new investigators that night, Joe and Jenna, as they asked to tag along with us, and we were more than happy to help try to show them the ropes a bit. Joe and Jenna were awesome to hang out with, and we enjoyed our time with them. Hopefully they learned a thing or two tagging along with us old decrepit investigators. (laughs) We tried to spend a little bit of time in every spot of the prison, but as with most public events, We spent a considerable amount of time just trying to avoid and space ourselves away from other investigators. For every serious person there, there were also a good amount of gigglers and thrill-seekers. Unfortunately, it just comes with the territory, but there were a few moments that we were left alone to our own devices. One of the first things I noticed during this investigation was the amount of deterioration that occurred at the prison since our last investigation. The building's looking a bit rough in some areas, and I'd later ask about the restoration efforts later that evening. The individual I spoke with agreed that there didn't seem to be much progress over the last few years, and they were concerned about the lease would be coming up in a few years from now. I myself, being a former owner of a historic property, can understand the difficulties that these endeavors present, especially when it comes to money, and I hope that they can figure something out down there to help turn the property around in the future. I'm not sure how serious the Economic Council is in using the required funds to put toward the building itself, despite it being a top tourist attraction for the county so this is something to keep an eye on in future. During our time in the sugar shack, I did notice that the prior EMF beer cage we noticed on our first investigation was nowhere near as bad as it was in 2011, so I'm assuming some sort of electrical work's been performed since. So that was a positive. We spent a decent amount of time in the prison's church, the wagon gate, the infirmary, the basement, and both cell blocks, and for the most part, we felt that it was a pretty quiet night. We did, however, have an instance on the top tier of the south cell block where our group felt like something was with us. It was hard to explain, but the area felt rather heavy, and it seemed like something was following us as we moved down the range. During that time, I believe we captured an EVP that was responding to Jeff and Joe's discussion about prisoners being thrown over the railing. It simply stated, jump, and I'm not sure if that was a taunt or something that was trying to describe a past event. I was also able to spend some alone time in Red Snyder's cell and we had a heart-to-heart discussion about some of the crimes he committed. Or at least I'd like to believe that Red was with me there for that. During that audio session, I paused on two occasions as I thought I had heard a few responses, but unfortunately upon our evidence review, the background noise was so bad that I couldn't be certain. Unfortunately, that's typically the main peril of public investigations. After a few hours of investigating, we ended the night at the prison's museum, and honestly it was one of my favorite parts of the night. I've previously discussed that I collect memorabilia from the old Ohio State Penitentiary, and the West Virginia Penitentiary is basically West Virginia's heir apparent. There's so much history in their museum. They have old Sparky, a wall of photos of individuals that were executed there, Charles Manson's letter and request for transfer to the facility, shanks, an original noose from the gallows, and so much more. While these artifacts are tragic reminders of the building's past, they're also important for showing today's generation how far we've come as a society. At this point, I've completed two investigations of the West Virginia Penitentiary. And while I'm still a skeptic overall, I think this location has earned its reputation for being haunted. This building and land has seen so much death and violence during its history. And if ghosts and hauntings do exist, how could this location not be active? (laughs) I've even had at least one moment where I've even started questioning my own beliefs a bit. The prison has certainly provided our team signs of a possible intelligent haunting through audio in the past but ultimately it's still not enough to prove a ghost exists as a team we can certainly relay our experiences and possible captures but it's up to you to have your own experiences and to make your own conclusions Well, that concludes this month's episode of the SeaBus Paranormal Paracast. I hope you guys enjoyed hearing about our experiences at this historic haunted prison. While the West Virginia Penitentiary is shrouded in its violent, blood-soaked past, it also provides a stark reminder of how far the prison system has come in recent years, and sadly, also how many historic prisons have already been torn down or lost to time. These historic prisons are slowly becoming harder to find and maintain, so I would certainly recommend adding it to your bucket list if you haven't already. Who knows what the future might hold. As always, feel free to add us on social media or visit our website at cbusparanormal.com for the latest news and updates. Next month, the Paracast will head back home to Ohio as we discuss Salt Fork State Park and its countless Bigfoot sightings. That being said, thank you for the support, and we'll meet again soon, next month. Thank you for listening.